Chapter Two of Mrs. Dalloway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Thomas Peter. Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. Chapter Two. Not a straw, she thought, going on up Bond Street to a shop where they kept flowers for her when she gave a party. Elizabeth really cared for her dog most of all. The whole house this morning smelt of tar. Still, better poor Grizzle than Miss Kelman. Better distemper and tar and all the rest of it than sitting mewed in a stuffy bedroom with a prayer book. Better anything, she was inclined to say. But it might be only a phase, as Richard said, such as all girls go through. It might be falling in love. But why with Miss Kilman? Who had been badly treated, of course. One must make allowances for that, and Richard said she was very able, had a really historical mind. Anyhow, they were inseparable, and Elizabeth, her own daughter, went to communion, and how she dressed, how she treated people who came to lunch, she did not care a bit, it being her experience that the religious ecstasy made people callous, so did causes, dulled their feelings, for Miss Kilman would do anything for the Russians, starved herself for the Austrians, but in private inflicted positive torture. So insensitive she was, dressed in a green Mackintosh coat. Year in, year out she wore that coat. She perspired. She was never in the room five minutes without making you feel her superiority, your inferiority. How poor she was, how rich you were, how she lived in a slum without a cushion or a bed or a rug or whatever it might be, all her soul rusted with that grievance sticking in it, her dismissal from school during the war. Poor, embittered, unfortunate creature. For it was not her one hated, but the idea of her, which undoubtedly had gathered into itself a great deal that was not Miss Kilman, had become one of those spectres with which one battles in the night, one of those spectres who stand astride us and suck up half our life-blood, dominators and tyrants. For no doubt, with another throw of the dice, had the black been uppermost and not the white, she would have loved Miss Kilman, but not in this world. No. It rasped her, though, to have stirring about in this brutal monster— to hear twigs cracking and few hooves planted down in the depths of that leaf-encumbered forest, the soul, never to be content quite, or quite secure, for at any moment the brute would be stirring, this hatred which, especially since her illness, had power to make her feel scraped, hurt in her spine, gave her physical pain, and made all pleasure in beauty, in friendship, in being well, in being loved, and making a home delightful rock, quiver, and bend, as if indeed there were a monster grubbing at the roots, as if the whole panoply of content were nothing but self-love, this hatred. Nonsense, nonsense, she cried to herself, pushing through the swing doors of mulberries of florists. She advanced, light, tall, very upright, to be greeted at once by button-faced Miss Pym, whose hands were always bright red, as if they had been stood in cold water with the flowers. There were flowers, 
delphiniums, sweet peas, bunches of lilac, and carnations, masses of carnations. There were roses, there were irises. Ah, yes. So she breathed in the earthy garden sweet smell as she stood talking to Miss Pym, who owed her help, and thought her kind, for kind she had been years ago, very kind, but she looked older this year, turning her head from side to side among the irises and roses, and nodding tufts of lilac with her eyes half-closed, snuffing in, after the street uproar, the delicious scent, the exquisite coolness. And then, opening her eyes, how fresh like frilled linen, clean from a laundry laid in wicker trays, the roses looked, and dark and prim the red carnations, holding the heads up, and all the sweet peas spreading in their bowls, tinged violet, snow-white, pale, as if it were the evening, and girls in muslin frocks came out to pick sweet peas and roses after the superb summer's day, with its almost blue-black sky. Its delphiniums, its carnations, its arum lilies was over. And it was the moment between six and seven when every flower, roses, carnations, irises, lilac, glows, white, violet, red, deep orange. Every flower seems to burn by itself, softly, purely in the misty beds. How she loved the grey-white moths spinning in and out over the cherry pie over the evening primroses and as she began to go with miss pym from jar to jar choosing nonsense nonsense she said to herself more and more gently as if this beauty this scent this colour and miss pym liking her trusting her were a wave which she let flow over her and surmounted that hatred that monster surmounted all and it lifted her up and up when oh a pistol shot in the street outside Oh dear, those motor-cars, said Miss Pym, going to the window to look, and coming back and smiling apologetically with her hands full of sweet peas, as if those motor-cars, those tires of motor-cars, were all her fault. The violent explosion which made Mrs. Dalloway jump and Miss Pym go to the window and apologise came from a motor-car which had drawn to the side of the pavement precisely opposite Mulberry's shop window. Passers-by, who, of course, stopped and stared, had just time to see a face of the very greatest importance against the dove-grey upholstery, before a male hand drew the blind, and there was nothing to be seen except a square of dove-grey. Yet rumours were at once in circulation from the middle of Bond Street to Oxford Street on one side, to Atkinson's scent shop on the other, passing invisibly inaudibly like a cloud swift veil-like upon hills falling indeed with something of a cloud sudden sobriety and stillness upon faces which a second before had been utterly disorderly but now mystery had brushed them with her wing they had heard the voice of authority the spirit of religion was abroad with her eyes bandaged tight and her lips gaping wide but nobody knew whose face had been seen was it the Prince of Wales's, the Queen's, the Prime Minister's? Whose face was it? Nobody knew. Edgar J. Watkiss, with his roll of lead piping round his arm, said audibly, humorously of course, The Prime Minister's car! Septimus Warren Smith, who found himself unable to pass, heard him. Septimus Warren Smith, aged about thirty, 
pale-faced, beak-nosed, wearing brown shoes and a shabby overcoat, with hazel eyes which had that look of apprehension in them which makes complete strangers apprehensive too. The world has raised its whip. Where will it descend? Everything had come to a standstill. The throb of the motor engine sounded like a pulse irregularly drumming through an entire body. The sun became extraordinarily hot because the motor car had stopped outside Mulberry's shop window. Old ladies on the tops of omnibuses spread their black parasols. Here a green, here a red parasol opened with a little pop. Mrs. Dalloway, coming to the window with her arms full of sweet peas, looked out with her little pink face pursed in inquiry. Everyone looked at the motor car. Septimus looked. Boys on bicycles sprang off. Traffic accumulated. And there the motor car stood, with drawn blinds, and upon them a curious pattern like a tree, Septimus thought, and this gradual drawing together of everything to one centre before his eyes, as if some horror had come almost to the surface and was about to burst into flames, terrified him. The world wavered and quivered and threatened to burst into flames. It is I who am blocking the way, he thought. Was he not being looked at and pointed at? Was he not waited there, rooted to the pavement, for a purpose? But for what purpose? Let us go on, Septimus, said his wife, a little woman with large eyes and a sallow pointed face, an Italian girl. But Lucrezia herself could not help looking at the motor car and the tree pattern on the blinds. Was it the queen in there, the queen going shopping? The chauffeur, who had been opening something, turning something, shutting something, got on to the box. Come on, said Lucrezia. But her husband, for they had been married four, five years now, jumped, started, and said, All right, angrily, as if she had interrupted him. People must notice, people must see. People, she thought, looking at the crowd, staring at the motor car. The English people, with their children and their horses and their clothes, which she admired in a way. But they were people now, because Septimus had said, I will kill myself. An awful thing to say. Suppose they had heard him. She looked at the crowd. Help, help, she wanted to cry out to butchers, boys and women. Help. Early last autumn she and Septimus stood on the embankment, wrapped in the same cloak, and Septimus reading a paper instead of talking. She had snatched it from him and laughed in the old man's face who saw them. But failure one conceals. She must take him away into some park. Now we will cross, she said. She had a right to his arm, though it was without feeling. He would give her, who was so simple, so impulsive, only twenty-four, without friends in England, who had left Italy for his sake, a piece of bone. The motor-car with his blinds drawn, in an air of inscrutable reserve, proceeded towards Piccadilly, still gazed at, still ruffling the faces on both sides of the street for the same dark breath of veneration, whether for queen, prince, or prime minister, nobody knew. The face itself had been seen only once by three people for a few seconds. Even the sex was now in dispute. But there could be no doubt that greatness was seated within. Greatness was passing, hidden, 
down Bond Street, removed only by handsbreadth from ordinary people who might now, for the first and last time, be within speaking distance of the majesty of England, of the enduring symbol of the state which will be known to curious antiquaries, sifting the ruins of time, when London is a grass-grown path, and all those hurrying along the pavement this Wednesday morning are but bones with a few wedding-rings mixed up in their dust, and the gold stoppings of innumerable decayed teeth. The face in the motor-car will then be known. "'It is probably the Queen,' thought Mrs. Dalloway, coming out of Mulberry's with her flowers. "'The Queen.' And for a second she wore a look of extreme dignity standing by the flower-shop in the sunlight where the car passed at a foot's pace, with his blinds drawn. "'The Queen going to some hospital.' The Queen opening some bazaar, thought Clarissa. The crush was terrific for the time of day. Lords, Ascot, Hurlingham. What was it, she wondered, for the street was blocked. The British middle classes sitting sideways on the tops of omnibuses with parcels and umbrellas. Yes, even furs on a day like this were, she thought, more ridiculous, more unlike anything there has ever been than one could conceive and the Queen herself held up, the Queen herself unable to pass. Clarissa was suspended on one side of Brook Street, Sir John Buckhurst, the old judge on the other, with a car between them. Sir John had laid down the law for years and liked a well-dressed woman, when the chauffeur, leaning ever so slightly, said or showed something to the policeman, who saluted and raised his arm and jerked his head and moved the omnibus to the side and the car passed through. Slowly and very silently it took its way. Clarissa guessed. Clarissa knew, of course. She had seen something white, magical, circular in the footman's hand, a disc inscribed with a name. The Queen's, the Prince of Wales's, the Prime Minister's, which, by force of its own luster, burned its way through. Clarissa saw the car diminishing, disappearing, to blaze among candelabras, glittering stars, breasts stiff with oak leaves, Hugh Whitbread and all his colleagues, the gentlemen of England, that night in Buckingham Palace. And Clarissa, too, gave a party. She stiffened a little, so she would stand at the top of the stairs. The car had gone, but it had left a slight ripple which flowed through glove-shops and hat-shops and tailor-shops on both sides of Bond Street. For thirty seconds all heads were inclined the same way, to the window. Choosing a pair of gloves, should they be to the elbow or above it, lemon or pale grey, lady stopped. When the sentence was finished, something had happened. Something so trifling in single instances that no mathematical instrument though capable of transmitting shocks in China, could register the vibration. Yet in its fullness rather formidable, and in its common appeal emotional. For in all the hat-shops and tailor-shops, strangers looked at each other and thought of the dead, of the flag, of empire. In a public house in a back street, a colonial insulted the house of Windsor, which led to words, broken beer-glasses, and a general shindy, which echoed strangely across the way in the ears of girls buying white underlinen threaded with pure white ribbon for their weddings. For the surface agitation of the passing car as it sunk graced something very profound. Gliding across Piccadilly, the car turned down St. James Street. Tall men, men of robust physique, 
well-dressed men with their tail-coats and their white slips and their hair raked back who for reasons difficult to discriminate were standing in the bare window of brooks's with their hands behind the tails of their coats looking out perceived instinctively that greatness was passing and the pale light of the immortal presence fell upon them as it had fallen upon clarissa dalloway at once they stood even straighter and removed their hands and seemed ready to attend their sovereign if need be to the cannon's mouth as their ancestors had done before them the white busts and the little tables in the background covered with copies of the tatler and siphons of soda-water seemed to approve seemed to indicate the flowing corn and the manor-houses of england and to return the frail hum of the motor-wheels as the walls of a whispering gallery return a single voice expanded and made sonorous by the might of a whole cathedral shawled more pratt with her flowers on the pavement wished the dear boy well it was the prince of wales for certain and would have tossed the price of a pot of beer a bunch of roses into st james street out of sheer light-heartedness and contempt of poverty had she not seen the constable's eye upon her discouraging an old irishwoman's loyalty the sentries at st james's saluted queen alexandra's policeman approved a small crowd meanwhile had gathered at the gates of buckingham palace listlessly yet confidently poor people all of them they waited looked at the palace itself with the flag flying at victoria billowing on her mound admired her shelves of running water her geraniums singled out from the motor-cars and them all first this one then that bestowed emotion vainly upon commoners out for a drive recalled their tribute to keep it unspent while this car passed and that and all the time let rumour accumulate in their veins and thrill the nerves in their thighs at the thought of royalty looking at them the queen bowing the prince saluting at the thought of the heavenly life divinely bestowed upon kings of the equerries and deep curtsies of the queen's old doll's house of princess mary married to an englishman and the prince ah the prince who took wonderfully they said after old king edward but was never so much slimmer the prince lived at st james's but he might come along in the morning to visit his mother so sarah bletchley said with her baby in her arms tipping her foot up and down as though she were by her own fender in pimlico but keeping her eyes on them all while emily coates ranged over the palace windows and thought of the housemaids the innumerable housemaids the bedrooms the innumerable bedrooms joined by an elderly gentleman with an aberdeen terrier by men without occupation the crowd increased little mr bowley who had rooms in the albany and was sealed with wax over the deeper sources of life but could be unsealed suddenly inappropriately sentimentally by this sort of thing poor women waiting to see the queen go past poor women nice little children orphans widows the wall tut tut actually had tears in his eyes a breeze flaunting ever so warmly down the mall through the thin trees past the bronze heroes lifted some flag flying in the british breast of mr bowley and he raised his hat as the car turned into the mall and held it high as the car approached and let the poor mothers of pimlico press close to him and stood very upright the car came on suddenly mrs coates looked up into the sky 
the sound of an aeroplane bored ominously into the ears of the crowd there it was coming over the trees letting out white smoke from behind which curled and twisted actually writing something making letters in the sky everyone looked up dropping dead down the aeroplane soared straight up curved in a loop raced sank rose and whatever it did wherever it went out fluttered behind it a thick ruffled bar of white smoke which curled and wreathed upon the sky in letters but what letters a c was it an e then an l only for a moment did they lie still then they moved and melted and were rubbed out up in the sky and the aeroplane shot further away and again in a fresh space of sky began writing a k an e a y perhaps Glaxo, said Mrs. Coates in a strained, awe-stricken voice, gazing straight up, and her baby, lying stiff and white in her arms, gazed straight up. Cremo, murmured Mrs. Bletchley, like a sleepwalker. With his hat held out perfectly still in his hand, Mr. Bowley gazed straight up. All down the mall people were standing and looking up into the sky. As they looked, the whole world became perfectly silent, and a flight of gulls crossed the sky, first one gull leading, then another, and in this extraordinary silence and peace, in this pallor, in this purity, bells struck eleven times, the sound fading up there among the gulls. The aeroplane turned and raced and swooped exactly where it liked, swiftly, freely, like a skater. "'That's an E,' said Mrs. Bletchley. "'Or a, a dancer.' "'It's Toffee,' murmured Mr. Bowley. And the car went in at the gates, and nobody looked at it. And shutting off the smoke, away and away it rushed, and the smoke faded and assembled itself round the broad white shapes of the clouds. It had gone. It was behind the clouds. There was no sound.' The clouds to which the letters E, G, or L had attached themselves moved freely, as if destined to cross from west to east on a mission of the greatest importance, which would never be revealed, and yet certainly so it was, a mission of the greatest importance. Then suddenly, as a train comes out of a tunnel, the aeroplane rushed out of the clouds again, the sound boring into the ears of all people in the mall, in the green park in Piccadilly, in Regent Street, in Regent's Park, and the bar of smoke curved behind, and it dropped down, and it soared up and wrote one letter after another. But what word was it writing? Lucrezia Warren-Smith, sitting by her husband's side on a seat in Regent's Park in the broad walk, looked up. "'Look! Look, Septimus!' she cried for Dr. Holmes had told her to make a husband, who had nothing whatever seriously the matter with him, but was a little out of sorts, take an interest in things outside himself. So, thought Septimus, looking up, they are signalling to me. Not indeed in actual words, that is, he could not read the language yet, but it was plain enough, this beauty, this exquisite beauty, 
and tears filled his eyes as he looked at the smoke words languishing and melting in the sky and bestowing upon him in their inexhaustible charity and laughing goodness one shape after another of unimaginable beauty and signalling their intention to provide him for nothing for ever for looking merely with beauty more beauty tears ran down his cheeks it was toffee they were advertising toffee a nursemaid told Rizia. together they began to spell t o f k r said the nursemaid and septimus heard her say k r close to his ear deeply softly like a mellow organ but with a roughness in her voice like a grasshopper's which rasped his spine deliciously and sent her running up into his brain waves of sound which concussing broke a marvellous discovery indeed that the human voice in certain atmospheric conditions for one must be scientific above all scientific can quicken trees into life happily Aresia put her hand with a tremendous weight on his knee so that he was weighted down transfixed with the excitement of the elm trees rising and falling rising and falling with all their leaves alight and the colour thinning and thickening from blue to the green of a hollow wave like plumes on horses heads feathers on ladies so proudly they rose and fell so superbly would have sent him mad but he would not go mad he would shut his eyes he would see no more End of chapter 2